welcome to the back page of video games podcast i'm samuel roberts i'm joined as ever by matthew castle hello matthew we have another special guest joining us so simon can you introduce yourself my name is simon parkin and i'm here (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty much everything you need to know about the man so uh yeah yes i suppose simon tell us a bit about your your background as a writer okay so i'm a freelance journalist and uh, and more recently, an author as well. It's an upgrade on Jeremy Peel because he just said, "Hi, I'm Jeremy," and like there was no further context <laughs> given. Like he was Madonna or another uh, or Prince or another single word um, sort of celebrity. So At least he gave his surname. Got your surname. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I appreciate it. So in this episode, Simon's going to talk to us a bit about his history as a freelance writer in games. Um, we've talked a bit about freelancing before with some of our guests, but Simon's got a particularly long and interesting history in this field. And so um, we're delighted that you're joining us, Simon. So what are your origins in games? Which platforms and games were significant to you as a younger man? It took uh, it took a little while for me to uh, be allowed a game device, to be honest. So I think my parents viewed it with a bit of scepticism. So the, my first sort of encounter with games was really going along to, on Saturday mornings, sort of getting kicked off. Uh, by my parents to go along to play tennis or, or whatever at the local uh, sports club. And then after we'd done our running around and all of that stuff, we sort of retired to the bar area uh, of the club where the, where they sort of set up a TV screen and we'd watch movies of the 80s, I'd say. So, I don't know, things like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and The Goonies and all that stuff. Yes. And to the side of where we were all sitting, there was an arcade cabinet with golden axe in it. And sort of some of the, the bigger kids would always have a bit of money that they'd, they'd put in after the film was finished and would try and complete golden axe sort of each week, getting a little bit further. So I remember watching that and just you know sort of wishing I could have a go but (laughs) they were sort of (laughs) a bit older and I didn't have you know pocket money and stuff like that that I could use on it so you know after that it it took a bit of convincing and wearing down on my parents so eventually I got a Game Boy I think Um, I think you were going to say eventually they gave me 20p to play Golden Axe no they bought me (laughs) Golden Axe the arcade game (laughs) oh wow no no, just just the Game Boy alas and then uh, yeah, you know, sh- shortly thereafter, I think I managed to get a Mega Drive for for Christmas as well. And yeah, so that was, that was sort of my formative experiences. And we had in our our local town centre a game shop, which was a, an independent called called Mad Andy's, which was was <laughs> run by the uh, by Andy himself. Who in my head sort of. I remember him like one of those sort of older dudes in 80s films that you might see in like Stranger Things or something now. He he was sort of balding with NHS glasses, but also like a beige leather jacket and skinny jeans. So sort of like cool, but not quite. And he ran the store and had like younger kids that that were, were on staff there. And so, yeah, I just used to spend a lot of time Mad Andy's sort of browsing the games and and chatting to them about what was coming out and sort of underneath the counter they had this would occasionally bring out what looked like a, a telephone book and it was essentially had all of the trade-in prices you know like you would get computer exchange now except it's all computerized so when someone brought a game in that they wanted to trade in it would tell them how much they could give in cash how much in exchange and all of that but it also 
had like a one sentence review of the game and a and I think a, a score rating out of a hundred percent. So I would like be forever taking up sort of obscure games that I found in the shop and going, Oh, what did this get? And they'd have to, you know, pull out the telephone book and, and tell me what score <laughs> was, it got. Who was assigning these scores? Was it Mad Andy himself? I I mean that would be amazing, wouldn't it? I I don't know. I don't I it doesn't make any sense, really, but I guess someone <laughs> someone was producing this thing, and and you could you know if you were a trade in store, you could you could sign up for it or something. I don't know. Oh, and okay. I don't know how often it was like updated or who was printing it and who was writing it or giving these scores, <laughs> but I was totally beguiled by it. It was just this amazing thing, and I, it, it's thanks to that um, telephone book that I I bought a copy of Gunstar Heroes on the on the Mega Drive, which is you know, just one of my all-time favourite games and I'd never heard of it and took it up and said, can you tell me something about this um, about this game? And they looked it up and said, oh, it's got like, I don't know anything about it, but it says here it's amazing. It's got like 93% or something like that. So <laughs> so I, I took that home and uh, and then, yeah, forever trusted the phone book. The Metacritic of its day. Exactly, yeah. You paint a very evocative picture of the tennis club and Mad Andes. I can see why you're an author now, Simon. It's like uh, very evocative, I would say. So... Yeah, I read on Eurogamer that when you were a student a little bit later, you'd buy Japanese import games on PlayStation. Um, what kind of brought that about and what were the highlights of that venture for you? Well, I mean, to be honest, I sort of fell away from games in my mid-teens, as I think like some people do. You sort of get interested in, in other things for a bit. And then I went off to, to university and became friends with a guy who had bought an N64 and I'd sort of been a bit out of the loop with it with consoles and but but he had this N64 and he had a copy of GoldenEye and we just became absolutely obsessed with it um, and would play it to the extent that we, we became sort of nocturnal we'd we'd you know go to go to bed at four or five a.m. and then wake up in the afternoon to start playing Goldeneye again and sort of (laughs) neglecting studies a bit and all of that and yeah I just sort of fell hard into games again at that point I picked up a magazine some sort of unofficial PlayStation magazine that had Metal Gear Solid on the cover and I remember reading about that and thinking this sounds incredible and yeah so then I you know, use some of my student loan to to buy a PlayStation One. You know, we sort of forget it now. But at that time, if you were seriously into into games, then you knew that you needed to have either an American console or a Japanese console because they run at sixty hertz. I'm not quite sure, like, of the engineering tech side of it, but but essentially, in the UK and power regions, our TVs run at fifty hertz, which increases the amount of screen tearing and you get less good up, update rates so if you were like really serious about games and you you would get an import machine and you'd make sure that the games you bought were were from from america or japan and my sort of place for for buying that stuff was computer exchange in rathbone place which is just off oxford street um there were actually a few sort of import stores in london at that time but that was that was the the main one and they were just very they had a huge selection of of japanese ps1 games that they would often get in you know months before they were localized and brought out in the us and uh, in europe as well so it was just quite an exciting time and i only actually found this out recently it was uh, well a few years ago i was doing a 20th anniversary 
piece on the launch of PlayStation for, for Edge magazine. And they'd got loads of fantastic interviews in with some of the Japanese sort of pioneers of it. And um, there was an interview with Ken Kutaragi, I think. And he was saying that there was... And the sort of origin of PlayStation you might remember is that they had a big fall. They were supposed to make a console with Nintendo and had a big falling out because Nintendo, um, you know, walked away from the deal. And Sony's president at the time was like, right, we're going to bring out our, our own Sony console. It's going to be the greatest thing ever. But he was so concerned that the Sony's board in Japan would, would sort of say, this is going to be a tremendous waste of money. You can't do it. That he, he moved the whole operation away from their, their tech and TV side of things and moved it over to Sony Music where he thought it would have a much better chance. This was a sort of a really profound decision because Sony Music, uh, unlike the video game industry at the time, was, was you know, understood that as well as the real big hitters like, you know, Madonna and U2, you also want to be investing in sort of independent indie bands and, you know, unknown artists and draw them up. And so they took loads of those principles and sort of seeded much smaller studios around Japan that could, you know, with smaller budgets, but encourage them to, to be making the kind of games that they were interested in, not necessarily, you know, trying to make the, the big hit uh, and copy what was selling very well at that time. And for that reason, the PlayStation catalogue at that time was just incredibly diverse and interesting. And they were making all sorts of weird stuff. Nana Ansha, which made Parappa the Rapper, was one of those studios that basically came on board because uh, Masaya Matsura, the, the founder of that, that company, knew loads of the people involved with PlayStation from, from Sony Music. They were sort of old people from there. So I think it sort of, you know, Sony set the tone in, in that sense for, you know, a lot of the more diverse indie stuff we, we see today. But anyway, the point being, computer exchange in london got loads of these games in and i was able to sort of pick them up and start to become you know interested i suppose in in stuff a little more off the beaten path and and that in turn began to you know lead me into retro stuff as well there was a at that time maybe few people remember this but but computer exchange in off oxford's circus had a sister store around the corner that was called Kex Retro, it was just this incredible Aladdin's cave, a bit like Super Potato in Akihabara. It was (laughs) modelled on that. I think they had a guy in Tokyo who was buying stuff and sending it over. And of course, at that time, you you know, the prices weren't weren't crazy like they are now. And I remember the first time going into Edge Retro, not knowing that much about, you know, old games. I think I'd played Final Fantasy VII and was sort of thinking, well, there must be some earlier Final Fantasies if this is the seventh one. (laughs) And going into to that store and they just had they had all of this you know super nintendo stuff and going all the way back really obscure interesting games the first time i saw a neo geo aes playing behind glass i think it had mark of the wolves playing and you know games that that you just you won't find in shops anymore because they cost like 800 Mm. quid on ebay now um but yeah you know that that shop was very short-lived but that was a really important sort of 12 months for me of just getting completely lost in in this scene of what was happening with PlayStation and then getting more and more drawn into the older side of games as well and sort of learning about about that where things have come from a bit more it's interesting because I've always I've always wondered this about you like where your tastes come from because I sort of I sort of think of you as a big JRPG and also sort of Japanese kind of arcade type person. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. Yeah, and I always wondered if that was just like a yeah. It's interesting that you kind of 
almost came to it a bit later. Yeah, I mean, there weren't many JRPGs on, on the Mega Drive. There was like Fantasy Star, but I never, I never played that at the time. So really, yeah, I got into it sort of very in the very mainstream way of picking up Final Fantasy VII and and then working my way back. And actually, at that computer retro store, I remember going in one time. And by this time, I'd really started learning about Square, Square Soft, as they were at the time, Square Enix now. And I wanted to sort of collect all of their... They brought out loads of their RPGs in America, but not in Europe. And I went in and they had a copy of Chrono Trigger behind the counter. Like even then it was, you know, knowing that it was quite special. I think it was like £60 or something, which now, you know, you wouldn't be able to buy that game for less than 250 quid probably on eBay. But mm-hmm. but even then, like 60 quid for a, for a Super Nintendo game was, was ridiculous. Like no one would spend that kind of money at that time. Uh, but it was in its, still in its shrink wrap, but whoever had owned it, owned it before had made a little incision along the, the where you open it up and had pulled the cart out that way so it was essentially sealed but you could still get at the game and when i right. um, <laughs> when, when i bought it the guy on the desk said oh yeah the guy who brought this in said to us make sure make sure whoever buys this looks after my stuff or something <laughs> <laughs> and i remember like very solemnly take it going oh yeah don't worry i really i will look after it so <laughs> Oh, I love the idea of being a student in central London and your instinct is like, right, time to go buy Terra Nigma on the SNES. <laughs> like, that kind of attitude. I, that was literally um, it. Yeah, that's exactly what, what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of like what you're reading at the time, what gets you interested in writing about games? What was um, influential for you, Simon? I actually had a brush with video game magazines when I was a bit younger. So before I owned a console... I convinced my dad to, well, I think I was just like in a news agents with my dad and he said, oh, you can, you know, why don't you pick a magazine? And so I picked up a copy of Mean Machines, which, you know, many people of my generation, that was quite a formative in a console video game mag and took that home and read it. But of course, I didn't have any of these systems. I was just sort of reading it through the (laughs) sort of enviously. Uh, But it was just so, so full of character. And, you know, if, if you've ever read Mean Machines, each of the Julian Rignall and each of the other reviewers had their own cartoon cartoon sort of caricature and they would they would give their their views and scores it would have like the main reviewer and then also secondary reviewer and it just had loads of loads of tone and you know for however old I was like 10 or 11 it was just absolutely amazing and they they had a tips and guides section they invited readers to send in their own tips and cheats for games I remember desperately wanting to have something to send in uh, but uh, but I didn't own any consoles, and so I went into Waterstones, and they had a like a an, an NES um, tips and cheats guide there, which I I I picked up a I managed to well I bought bought a copy somehow, and then I just copied out like one of the tips. <laughs> For, for for Maniac Mansion and you know a game which I still haven't played to this day and um, <laughs> and, and yes yeah, sent it via letter into Me Machines and it got published and um, oh. I actually what I, a scam I know total scam terrible terrible where where are the ethics there and then I I um I actually like tracked it down the other day because all of the Me Machines have been uploaded to you know, the internet archive or something. And I met, I was like, oh, I wonder if I can find my letter. And I, I did. And it's so embarrassing. Just the most embarrassing <laughs> thing. I'd, I, was re- I was really into Guns N' Roses at the time and I'd, I'd signed my name. <laughs> I, can, I can barely say this. <laughs> I signed my name, Simon Slash Parkin. <laughs> 
that's got a that's got a very different energy to your current output. <laughs> And uh, like whoever had printed it had written, we won't like in in parenthesis after they wrote my name, but we won't ask how he got his his nickname. And um, you know, hugely embarrassing, but also what a thrill! What a thrill, eh? To be in Mean Machines when you're 11 years old or whatever. So, so yeah, I don't know if that if I had that in mind, but basically. I finished uni and uh, I was in I was in bands at that time trying to make it as a musician and we were doing all the sort of London venues you have to do if you want to try and get signed and we did have like a a publishing deal and but you know we wanted like a record deal and we were you know in that whole throng with with other bands in London at the time you know it was just after a while it was it was not working out so I thought well I better you know have another iron in the fire here so so I made the tremendously wise decision to go down the path of games journalism the other the other really secure (laughs) vocation yeah uh, (laughs) I'd been sort of super into a, a magazine called record collector which was uh sort of gave you it, it was for you know obviously collectors of vinyl and it, and it would give the current prices and things like that and i just sort of thought well you know this should probably be one of those for, for video games i was in this scene at the time of um you know being really into uh in, into vintage games and retro games and you know it was very up on what they were worth and their current market values and all of that because you know i was spending so much time you know looking hunting down copies on ebay or in these stores in london or whatever so i'd been reading edge magazine around that time and uh, you know that had got me into uh, i suppose the more a more serious way of writing about games thinking about games and so i just looked in the front of that for you know a name or a or an email address or something where i could you know send in this idea for a essentially a video game collector magazine and uh, i think it was Richard Keith, maybe, uh, was the guy's name, right. who, was the, who was the publisher of Edge at the time. And I had his email. and I, So I, I wrote to him and said, look, I've got an idea for a magazine. Could I come and tell you about it? And I think he, he phoned me up and said, yeah, why don't you come to Bath and we can, we can talk about it. So I got in the car and drove down there. I really didn't know what I was doing, obviously. Um, <laughs> I didn't like have a PowerPoint or anything like that. Just literally walked in his office. It was like, I think there should be a record collector for games. Let's do it. And uh, <laughs> he sort of explained, you know, how much money it takes to launch a magazine and what it costs to get you a magazine into WH Smith and said, look, it's a good idea, but I'm not sure the market's there, which I, I think actually, you know, he was wrong about or at least wrong about now. But he said, why don't you like instead of doing it as a you know, standalone magazine, why don't you write a series of articles for Edge about, you know, collectible video games and maybe... Uh, do a you know a system at a time and and see if you can make it a thing it was very fortuitous timing because at that precise moment um tony mott who is like the you know the sort of long time long-term editor or editor-in-chief of edge was was working on a a sort of spin-off edge magazine called edge retro was the first one at the time and so um he just introduced me to him and and tony said why don't you you know i need to fill this magazine on edge retro you seem to know about retro games why don't you write for write for me about you know video game collecting for that and at the same time um 
Joao Sanchez, who is editor of Edge at the time, said, you know, agreed to let me try out this collector series for for, for Edge. So yeah, that that sort of you know what I was reading and and where where that took me at that time, I guess. Uh, that's uh, amazing stuff. I mean, did you refer to yourself as Simon slash Parkin when you um, <laughs> took the meeting with Richard Keith? Is that uh, was that your opening gambit, Simon? Yeah. Or uh, demanded that yeah. byline on on every Edge. So. <laughs> Oh. But your meme machine story, I feel like, will get you stripped of your GMA retroactively um, I mean, by some kind of... Uh, f- yeah. Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> I, I do like, though, that, uh, you know, now that you write for The New Yorker, you have ended up at the only other publication that has cartoon avatars these days. <laughs> so that's, I mean, again, very different energy, but... <laughs> Oh. So, what was the landscape of games media like back then? What did you make of make of it as someone who was new to that scene? I mean, I, you know, I was a I was a big fan of Edge, but w- when I turned up for that first meeting, I knew who all of them were because there was an Edge forum, so I knew all of the. E- even though at that time, Edge articles didn't have a byline on them. I think I was so sort of into it that I could could identify who the writers were on different features. Steve Curran was was writing at that time for Edge, who I think previously he'd written for The Face. Um, So his tone was very vivid. It was not like anything I'd really read before about games. And then he had David McCarthy as well, who was doing um, cerebral, I suppose you'd say, but, but also, you know, super intelligent but accessible writing about games as well and I was working closely with Mark Warbank who was the the features editor there and sort of trying to trying to learn how to write features at that time I think you know around future my sense was I didn't live in Bath you know I was a long way away but and I was also incredibly green I have to say like you know I remember Richard Keith leading me down and to, to meet an editor who was working on like a Game Boy Advance magazine. There were just so many magazines coming out all the time, you know, not only the official ones, but loads of spin-offs as well, which I think says something about how healthy the magazine games market was at that time. And they were so, you know, they were obviously so desperate for, for copy that, or for freelancers who could write stuff that, that I remember meeting this editor and it was obvious that, you know, this Advance magazine was just a side project that he had been given and he was a bit irritated about it, perhaps. And he was also you know running something else and he was like oh you know can you can you review Yoshi's Island for us Uh, it's going to be like the cover story and I was like yep yep that's fine and um and he was like um what are you okay to take grabs Uh, I don't know what grabs were and that is like an ungoogleable term so I remember like going yep yeah I can sort grabs out that's fine and I coming home and like get, trying to google what's a gra- what's a grab oh my god it's, <laughs> it's it's so humiliating anyway but you know that, that's the truth of it and and no one's like they just want it done and then no one's sort of helping you and guiding you on this stuff but anyway uh i sort of you know one way or another found out he meant screenshots and and no i couldn't take game boy advance screenshots so i ended up having to like drive to bath to do my screenshots every time um, every time I reviewed a game, oh, man. yeah, a couple of hours, <laughs> and I, remember, I actually remember doing. I think the first game I reviewed for Edge was was um, Kingdom Hearts, and I had to come and do screenshots for it. And I remember um, Mark having a, a let's say a, a debate with the publisher um, of the magazine about whether I really needed to come in and they were going to pay my petrol or not. <laughs> so just sort of being in the cushion, <laughs> sort of in the background, 
looking very sheepish, thinking, oh, please pay my petrol. <laughs> the, the, the sense... Uh, the sense that I got was that you know it was very things were going really well with the with the magazine business there. I think official PlayStation magazine was doing like two hundred and fifty thousand copies a month or something, which is like mm. double what the Guardian sells now in a in a day in you know, a circulation. <laughs> so, um, and you know, let, let's be honest, that was that was down to the cover disc, I think, where, that was giving people demos. But um, you know, the you know that's the that was the the sense I got is that it was it was a good time to be making magazines and you know probably the last hurrah really but um yeah it was it was exciting to to come in at the tail end of that and you know even glancingly sort of see see what was going on there that was quite like a hardcore period of edge I think when people think of edge magazine they're probably thinking of that kind of voice definitely those scores like that's I think that's the team that kicks the face off Mario Kart you know, and things like that, and mm. everyone gets gets everyone upset forevermore. D- did you find your voice like just naturally fit that? Or I always think it's interesting when people write for Edge because you bring all these kind of con- you know preconceptions of what the mag's like and its reputation, and you maybe find yourself like morphing into this sort of strange Edge critic that you maybe aren't naturally. Mm. <laughs> or did you just find it like? You know, like when you're reviewing Kingdom Hearts, you know, you're just like, oh yeah, this is just this just just suits me, but you know, fine. I mean, I'd like to say yes, but no. I think the honest answer is no. I was probably doing an impression of what I thought someone who writes for Edge should should sound like, <laughs> and I was probably doing that for quite a long time as well. Um, yeah, I'm I'm super good friends with with Chris Donlan, who who started writing for Edge as well, and now works for Eurogamer, and. He says that, you know, so one of the misconceptions about Edge is that, um, you know, there's an Edge voice when actually the real Edge voice is just, you know, I suppose, bright people writing in their own voice intelligently about about games, which which I, I think is I think is true. And when Edge is at its best, that's absolutely what it is. To be honest, uh, you know, you're coming in as a young a young person, really. I don't know. I must have been like 21, 22. And you don't you don't really have a voice yet. You know, maybe maybe a few people do. But I don't really think as a writer, you, you actually find your voice till you're like 30, to be honest. So, uh, you know, maybe that wasn't true for the, for the people on staff at Edge, but, but certainly I was, I was sort of writing in, in the style. I'm quite good at imitation, I think. So I was sort of writing how I thought, mm. how I thought it should, should sound. And then, and then at some point, you know, if I write for Edge now, I'm just writing like me and they might sort of round off some of the edges to, to, to you know make it fit but but I, I don't think they do too much of that you know you're sort of you mm-hmm. sort of a, you know you've got you've got leeway but it but when you when I was starting off I didn't have that confidence in in you know mine what I was doing I suppose Matthew when you're writing for Edge do you have you had any similar sort of experience with it because you're obviously still writing for them I'd say very similar because Edge was so different to Endgamer you know, end gamer. It jokes, jokes, jokes. It was lots of we do this. We think, you know, we had this big collective thing. You know, we were these big kind of personalities in there. And I think I, I think I'm okay at writing for Edge. Like I'm really proud of the stuff I've I've written for them. But I definitely feel like the stuff I've written for them, like in the last couple of years, is like a lot more chilled and better for it. Yeah, for sure. If I was in your position, Simon, uh, and I was reviewing Kingdom Hearts for Edge, I would think, okay, well, Edge surely fucking hates Goofy. That's like the stance, <laughs> the stance I would take on it. I think. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, so something that we've covered on this show before is that the PS2 era was particularly outrageous by today's standards. The dynamics between you know games media and PR, and um, Dan Dawkins told us some stories about envelopes full of preview code that was um, made it sound super suspect. 
But I was curious what you witnessed during that time, Simon. Does any, are there any stories that jump out in your memory that kind of indicate the time you were living in? I think, to be honest, you know, I was not sufficiently established to, at that time, to be getting, you know, the really good gigs, you know, in terms of going off to, you know, expensive and exciting places so so a lot of my um experience of of that stuff in that particular era was was hearing about it you know secondhand either from people who were who were doing that stuff at the time or or you know slightly i think the generation before me i think yeah i think that had been the real time when it was very moneyed i mean obviously this is you know pre the financial crash but but even so i think in the early 2000s things were tailing off a bit perhaps i remember Steve Boxer, who is a sort of older journalist who who used to write for for The Guardian before, you know, a while back before before I was really involved. And I I don't know who he worked for before, but he was sort of really... I, I when I would see him at events he would always be sort of telling telling me his sort of insane war stories and he was saying that during the Dreamcast era he'd been Sega had sent him to Paris to review Crazy Taxi and when he turned up they they sort of rolled up in a American style yellow cab with two sort of <laughs> scantily clad women in it and and a driver going they'll just take you wherever you want to go mate in a in a french accent i guess and um and i think they even i think i i mean you'd have to ask him but as i recall the story he said that they drove him to calais in it with the top down just in the back and I, I also remember Ellie Gibson told me a story, and I think this is, you know, this is also indicative of the mainstream sort of lads mags at that time, FHM loaded, all all of those mags that that aren't really around anymore. But you know, they obviously game publishers were desperate to get their games covered in those sort of publications because they were they had just in, insane readerships and circulation. I I can't remember which company it was, but but one of them went to you know one of the editors on like FHM or or whichever one it was and said, look, we've got a trip to Las Vegas. Do you want to come out see this game and you know write up your one paragraph or whatever it is that they they would do? <laughs> and this guy said, well, you know, do you know I've actually been to Las Vegas quite recently. So how about I just write that one paragraph and you take the money that you would have spent on me going out there and buy me a TV. <laughs> I was going to say charity, but that's, uh... <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that is wild. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. So, so there, there was some of that, some of that going on. But, but I feel like that was um, that was slightly before before my time. Although, you know, going up to the going up to Futures London offices at the time, I was writing for official Xbox magazine, and they um, they shared an office with like some of the. I, I don't know some of the the non-official PlayStation magazines, which would you know the sort that would definitely have a, a lady in swimwear on the front cover. And I remember being there one mm. time to to do my grabs, and they're <laughs> and they're being they're being like a just full of um, women sort of in bikinis doing their audition for the front cover of the shoot, and um, just <laughs> I mean that just feels like it was a thousand years ago. That just wouldn't happen now, but. Um, I mean, I don't, I, it, like in terms of the the decadence, I think now ha, has pretty much gone. The last hurrah, which sticks really vividly in my mind, was uh, I think like around two thousand and ten, two thousand eleven. Activision took a load of journalists out to um, Los Angeles for COD XP, which was their big sort of 
launch of their what would what would become I suppose their esports um, tournament annual tournament I don't know if it's still annual but anyway this was the the big launch of it and they took over an entire hotel that was only filled with um, press from all around the world um, and they were like just we're going to pay the bill for the whole hotel so it must have smelled awful yes um, can you imagine and and it was I mean already a really lavish event I mean it wasn't put on for the benefit of press there was there were you know thousands of normal punters there sort of you know come to watch the matches and they had they'd booked Kanye West to perform on the like last evening I wrote about this for for Eurogamer at the time and um you know everyone getting bussed to go and see Kanye it was just after he'd done his collaboration with Jay-Z the Watch the Throne had come out and he was he was sort of at the height of his powers I think at that time and he mm-hmm. played this this sort of show and because we were pressed we were allowed to stand around the the mixing engineer i remember being stood next to lindsay lohan and thinking this is <laughs> this is weird and then we went to the the after show party somewhere on like sunset boulevard or whatever and it was sort of like VIPs who were involved in Activision and then like a load of pasty white men from South England with their backpacks looking completely out of place. And they had like a VIP area that was roped off with velvet, velvet rope. And Kanye, obviously, because this was part of his like contractual ob- obligation, was sat like in the corner, like slumped with his hoodie, like right up, just having the worst time ever. And and like next to him was um, Terry Hatcher, the um, the um, act- actress who was in uh, Superman in like the nineties. Yeah. And my very good friend Keith Stewart, I was with him and we were we were there just sort of laughing about the situation because it's inherently quite funny. And he'd had a few drinks and I remember him going to me, I'm going to go and say hi. And he sort of went, went shuffled over to the bouncer and just obviously said something that worked because then the bouncer sort of beckoned at, at, um, at Terry and she like leaned forward and I was in earshot and I heard him say, I love your work. Uh, just want to say big fan of your work, um, Miss Thatcher. so that was like that was for me the the sort of last the last one of those sort of mythical big ridiculous sort of over over lavish and and expensive um sort of press junkets i suppose amazing but um so uh, as time moves on then simon you you're obviously you know got you've got a big interest in uh japanese games japanese rpgs and arcade games um, I was curious what you made of the HD era of consoles because we talk about that quite a lot on this um, mm. this podcast. There's there's still a lot of interesting stuff happening coming out of Japan in the kind of like late noughties, But I was curious what you made of it as the, at the time as a freelancer covering it. Did you feel like it was an, an era that changed in your favour or or less so? Were there more games you liked or or fewer games that you liked? What definitely felt like it was changing is the sort of FIFA model of an iterative series where each year you get the new version of the thing and it's supposed to be incrementally better that really felt like it it bedded in during this era perhaps and I was you know my interest was really firmly in I suppose those sort of standalone amazing games from that I'd really enjoyed that were just one thing and it was you know there might be a sequel later but it wasn't going to be like an incremental one in the same in the in the way that like a call of duty game is or or a fifa game Mm. also i mean it's difficult to to imagine now but at that time it was all about 3d 
certainly in the in the early part of the 2000s you know the idea that 3d is the future that's what we're moving towards everything was about you know what uh what are the polygons look like on this you know all of that sort of stuff yeah. and you know my intro- i was i was just so into like the sega saturn at that time which which was obviously like a, a system that did very poorly in europe but if you liked 2d hand-drawn pixel games like that's that was where it was all happening um that was the system to get into and it had all the games that i loved so i definitely you know had a had the feeling that that the games that that i really loved and was in were it was sort of you know still playing regularly were were sort of becoming more and more of a bygone era but then of course xbox live arcade comes along and and then suddenly companies become alive to the fact that their back catalogs are of interest to to people you know not only people who played them at the time but maybe new generations you know i don't think it's an exaggeration to say like all the way up to 2004 2005 game publishers just completely forgot about their back catalogs they had no interest in game preservation or in 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 some way you know monetizing the games that come out before there's a sort of famous story about how Sega, you know, which brought out Panzer Dragoon Saga, just one of the most seminal RPGs of that era, and just lost the code for it. That's how that's how little regard they had for they had for these games once they were out. That's it, right? In the bin, on with the next thing. And um that sort of really starts to change, I guess, when XBLA comes along. And I remember when Castlevania Symphony of the Night was released on uh, XBLA, and I remember thinking, "Oh, okay, this is cha- this is about to change, and you know, we're going to see, we're going to see, you know, not only the these games that I treasure from the past, you know, being represented to people, uh, but also, you know, maybe games in that style are going to come back into fashion, which you know, to one degree or another, has, has absolutely happened. And and you know, I remember f- feeling sort of very evangelical about the idea that two D pixel art was you know an aesthetic choice wasn't that it was you know had been superseded it was like an artist choosing like watercolors or um, oil paints to use a pretentious example but that's how I felt about it I was like you know it shouldn't be that like that stuff is now out the window it's been improved upon you know you can have both things and thankfully that's that's certainly where we are and I think that was changing in the HD era as it was coming in there was this this new new way of, of of viewing games across the sort of spectrum of of history uh matthew as someone who was playing games at the kind of like 2d 3d divide did you have any particularly strong opinions on that it's interesting so we've we've um just recorded the our n64 mini draft episode simon where we were like competing to build little collections of n64 games sin and punishment yes sam got that one um I, I took Bangayo. Oh, brilliant, so good. Did you know, like the the N sixty four version of Bangayo, they only printed twelve thousand copies, um, which at the time seemed like in, in probably small, but now you get like limited run doing five hundred copies of a game or whatever. Yeah, well, which is all the more reason to to put it on my N sixty four mini, and for listeners of this podcast <laughs> to vote for me in that poll. Um, I'll take that opportunity. Matthew, um, the voting's closed by the time the episode goes live. But oh, right, yeah. I appreciate oh, your moxie, though. I appreciate the effort. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, like, one of my memories from the time was there was a bit of a stigma around 2D games on the N64 hmm. in terms of a sense of, like, well, you know, why aren't you making 3D games? Well, this is disappointing. You know, like, you have all this power at your fingertips and, you know, a, f- a few things get through, but... 
a lot of the two two D games on that platform, I feel, were definitely marked down, and there's maybe more affection for them now. I think we've maybe like grown up a bit and can enjoy both, um, mm. which was what kind of came up in the N sixty four draft, and you know, with the you know the, the indie scene now, and so many people working in two D and doing interesting things in it. I think like to, you know, any teenager now getting into video games now would would just not even see that divide. Yeah, but back then yeah. it was a little bit like. Oh, mischief makers. It's a bit flat, isn't right, it? Right. Uh, so, Simon, I was curious about how the online, uh, the rise of online media affected you as a freelancer. When did you become aware that online was starting to overtake print a little bit? You know, and I don't want to speak for everyone, but my, my personal perspective, I think, was with, with the advent of Eurogamer, where, you know, for up until that point, sort of, it, for me anyway, personally, Edge is where, where it was all at. And it was when su- suddenly some of the people who had been working at, at Edge started freelancing for Eurogamer and saw those names coming up. And, and then, you know, the sort of stuff they were writing had like a an Edge flavour, but it was also its own thing. And you also got like readers' comments under the thing and it just felt different and like there was more back and forth and and all of all of that that coincided i think with a shift within the idea of what games writing could be so which i i don't know if you talked about this on the podcast before but kieran gillen now the the marvel writer who was a pc gamer i guess at the time wrote a, a manifesto called new games journalism which was sort of based on the the music new, new music journalism manifesto of like the 60s or the 70s with lester bangs and and all of that crowd just this idea that actually you know writing about games can be very subjective you know up until that point certainly you know on on edge and and my understanding was that you try to be as objective as possible and there's certainly legions of of people on the internet who think that's still the case but you know suddenly kieran who's very well respected was was sort of publicly saying actually you know it's very interesting when a writer takes a completely subjective view of the subject and 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 just presents that idea And, and that felt like a real permission really to try to try different things that was happening a lot at that time Mm. especially online and being able to write different kinds of stories which now you know for for me personally most of them I view with tremendous embarrassment but but at the same time it was like a (laughs) it's a chance to just try out some different voices and some different approaches and uh, you know while I think for for me most of those were were failures um, in the long run it probably helped me find my voice because I was able to see what worked and what didn't how I how I should sound. I, I still feel deeply uncomfortable writing in first person, mm. which and I know it's not as crude as, you know, that was the distinction with what Kieran was talking about. They were definitely a crowd, like the PC gamer crowd of all the magazines that was written mm-hmm. in first person and what he was doing on Rock Paper Shotgun at this time, you know, I was on Endgamer, we were still writing as a collective we, you know, even to the point where we were talking about like, you know, here's an anecdote about our collective uncle, which made no sense at all. Uh, when you read back that stuff, you're like, our mum, like we we all have the same mum, and here's a very here's a very specific story from my childhood. Um, I like that image, which though. is mad. That's lovely. <laughs> 
but uh, yeah. yeah no i mean absolutely but uh, it's not that one thing is right and one thing is wrong there is that there are venues and places and pieces that are right for one particular mode i think it was just really it's okay to try other things and that was that was mm. the what i took from it really and and then as a result of that you know i was i think i i had been writing features for, for edge and it, and in the early part of my career sort of you know trying to learn how to how to write features i suppose and this has just reminded me of another source of tremendous night nighttime shame <laughs> but very early in my career okay so i think the best the best features right are posit a question that you as the reader think oh i've never thought to articulate it like that but now you have yes i absolutely want to know the answer to that right um mm. someone sam knight who is i think probably the best feature British feature writer at the moment who now writes for the New Yorker but wrote for Guardian Longread he's the master of this so he for Guardian Longread he wrote a, a very famous piece about what happens like immediately after the queen dies um, and then just went into massive right. detail on that and like why are British people so obsessed with pack sandwiches when no one else in the world is like that's just such a great starting point for a for a fit for a massive feature because like it's something we all are very familiar with and and you think yeah why are we where did that come from and and off you go so i think you know if you're a feature writer you you probably need a little bit of that in your dna like the ability to do that but at starting out i just didn't have you know you're also limited by access and what's around you and who you know and so i remember pitching Mm. to there was like a new magazine that had been launched by I can't Sam something I can't remember his surname he went on to be editor at the NME and he had previously worked on Arcade which was a fantastic magazine in the late 90s I think anyway he'd launched this magazine whose name I can't remember and I'd done some work for him and I remember pitching him racking my brains and and I sent him a pitch that was like why don't I write a series of mini profiles of all the different PR people for video game companies <laughs> because <laughs> Because that's what I knew. Like, those are the people around me. I'm just like, I don't know anything. And like, I'm like, okay, I could do that. That seems like an interesting question to ask. Who are the people that like market the games? And I remember him just sending me back like a one-line email, devastating one-line email that said, who the fuck would want to read that? <laughs> that, that took me a while to recover from. But... Um, <laughs> Um, where's it going with that anyway so yeah at, at Eurogamer so anyway we've had this period of like trying to do more um, more subjective pieces and, and personal things and, and that just led me into like I guess a, a new phase in my personal writing of just being able to ask better questions than that one for example and um, and you know like having having Eurogamer as a as a platform to do some of those features was tremendously valuable like I did I did a, a piece on an investigative piece on people who were playing video games for you know 20 hours at a time in internet cafes in taiwan and and china and and then you know dying at their where they sat and um that that then turned into what was my first book death by video game and um you know just it was just a wonderful opportunity to to work with some some good editors who were very supportive and um to just try these different things it wouldn't have been quite right for some of the other venues i was writing for so for me like personally it was a really it's it's not 
not very games master that one. No, I suppose not. No. <laughs> Did you ever want to be on staff at all, or were you always quite happy being freelance? You know, if, if the right opportunity had come up, would you have taken it? Something I suppose that, that we don't often talk about in these sort of retrospective things is is actually just the, like how hard it is to make a living as a freelance writer. Um, you know, the word rates are difficult, and they were then, and they haven't really gone up in the last twenty years or whatever. So, um, you know, it, it is. <laughs> It is a very tough like industry and there were when I when I first had that meeting um, at Future they they offered me a, a job on edge um, at that time um, and I just couldn't take it I just um, I just got married and had like moved house and like near Brighton and was you know starting a life so the idea of like uprooting all of that and moving to bath as appealing as that might have been was just not possible mm. and yeah later on I did like apply to to a job at Eurogamer I think as well and you know I didn't didn't get that for one reason or another and I think that was the right call and I'm glad that I didn't get that job because it allowed me to continue writing features for them and which which eventually led to all the other stuff that that I'm doing now I think sometimes you can be so desperate for you know trying to make it all work as a freelancer that you end up trying to go for some completely ill-advised um roles and i do remember just like browsing the journalism.co.uk website or whatever it was looking at jobs that were coming up and there was a (laughs) there was a job that came up for like the friday ads or something and i was like it was just like a, a tough month or whatever and i was like oh i might just do that and then i'll just freelance on the side or something and so i applied to this job and they said, can you include like a writing sample? And, oh gosh, <laughs> this is so bad. <laughs> a few like years earlier at Edge, when it was, you know, you were talking about how that sort of Steve, David, Joao era was like a really, really yeah, classic yeah. era. And part of what made it a classic era is they would do like theme issues that were not themed around a video game. Something that you wouldn't be allowed to do today on Edge, I don't think. So they would do them around issues. So there was like one famous cover with like an anime guy holding a light gun to his head and the caption was like bored to death of video games or something and they did one one Mm. issue that was like all about sexism in games right and because um because it was edge and they were taking like a you know an interesting approach to it their cover choice for it was the midriff of one of the uh one of the beach volleyball girls from uh, dead or alive beach volleyball right and it was like a close-up of her bikini right of her midriff and it just said like in the middle girls 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 i think i think it might have said the sex right. issue i think it might have okay said that. well that, um, I, I mean that's even that better for this anecdote <laughs> <laughs> So of course, like that's I'm like applying. <laughs> so I'm applying to like the Friday ads, and of course, looking around for a sample, and that was like I had like that issue lying around on my desk, and I was like, oh, I just shove that in. So like, put the whole issue in with that like that cover. <laughs> so whoever got my application at Friday ads would have pulled that slid out this glossy magazine with like a 3D render of a of a woman's vagina, essentially. <laughs> Oh dear! <laughs> so yeah, that's amazing. That's a brilliant application. Needless to say, I didn't I didn't get a response for that one. Um, and you lost one of your favourite issues of Edge. <laughs> <laughs> like, can, can can you send it back? <laughs> 
Just calling Futures Back Issues Department. Uh, excuse me. Do you have any more of these? Uh, got any more of the sex issue? Just to just to be clear, that issue was was obviously not designed to titillate. It was there to. It was very. Yeah, it was very yeah. ahead of its time. In fact, and I wrote a piece for that for that for that issue that was called. Um, I was so pleased with his title, but I would never write this now. But it was all about how loads more women are like playing games. I mean, extremely of its time, right? And um, the title I gave it was Game Girl at which I was just like dined out on that for like a, mm. a good month but now obviously <laughs> wouldn't do that wouldn't do that again anyway I was wrong by the way it was the girl issue instead of that issue. cover okay, so um, yeah there we go but, uh, either yeah. way you wouldn't print it in 2021 right. it's so, nice that you read it um, as the sex issue though Sam <laughs> I feel like Googling that has just fed the algorithm some information I didn't want it to know. But um, what can you do? Um, I guess then uh, from there, just winding back to um, freelancing throughout the, uh, the the last kind of like 10 years or so, Simon, how do you end up writing for The New Yorker? So I was I was doing a lot of feature writing for, for Edge at the time. And I also I had actually taken a taken a, a part time side job working working in making games. It was more on the sort of um, online um flash games as they were at the time so we would like make games for um like movie studios when they had something coming out or we did stuff for the bbc and channel four and um so i had like a setup that could work and and that did work quite well because it would afford me you know i could then justify spending like two months on a on an investigative piece for for Eurogamer or whatever um and because i had that set up i was able to do quite a a, a long piece I can't actually remember when it came out. It must have been about 2012, which which was, I, I suppose, essentially, you know, finding one of those simple questions that everyone thinks, oh, yeah, what's the answer to that? And which was, well, you know, when we all know that when Sony wants to put a Ferrari in Gran Turismo, money exchanges hands. Is that also true when someone wants to put an Uzi 9mm into one of their video games? Which, of course, most people do want to put an Uzi in their games because of video games. Um, so it's really just like, it does gun licensing happen in games? Like, are these things being being paid for? Yeah, so I, I spent time, time on that piece and it came out really well because Barrett, the makers of the M82 50 caliber sniper rifle the the person who spoke to me just for whatever reason broke his nda and said um yes activision like pays us money to put the m82 in call of duty uh, which he definitely was not allowed to do and um but, you know but was obviously a fantastic piece of information to have for this particular story because it it showed it showed you know that this does go on and in fact when i buy a copy of call of duty then some of that money goes to arms manufacturers which isn't a big deal i suppose in north america but in other parts of the world can be so i wrote this piece and it just happened to coincide with um the new yorker deciding to start a new vertical i guess as they're called um on their website uh, around science and technology and they'd hired a guy called matt buchanan just a, a fantastic young editor who'd come from buzzfeed and he now he now runs um eater i think but anyway he, he joined the new yorker and was sort of looking for a pool of writers to write about different topics under the umbrella of science and technology and he asked one of the the video game writer at buzzfeed a guy called joe bernstein who is now it's still at um still at buzzfeed but he now writes about very serious things like you know the rise of the far right and stuff like that um 
and he asked Joe, said, you know, who would you recommend that I approach to f- freelance? And Joe happened to, I think, have read this piece on arms manufacturers and so gave him my name. Lucky, of course, and like good timing, of course. And then, you know, having been offered that opportunity and get this sort of one in a million email through saying, would you, would you like to contribute something to our website? Just trying to make the absolute best of that opportunity. And, um, I had like quite a clear idea of what I wanted to write about with games on the website. Um, I wanted it to be sort of not advocacy, not cheerleading, which I think some of the mainstream stuff on games can be, but um, Mm -hmm. also that would appeal to like non-gamer readers. But then like for people who were like super into games, they would still be interested in reading it, which is actually quite hard like there's quite a narrow band I think of stories that sit within that Um, but that was that was Mm. what I was trying to do so I wrote about the video game scene in Iraq at the time during the war in Iraq where ironically you know in the rest of the world parents are constantly trying to get their their children to stop playing games and to go outside well of course if you're living in Baghdad and there's you know every other car's got a, a bomb strapped to it then you want your children to stay inside and play video games so they had a very vibrant game scene so I wrote about that Hmm. Uh, this is a story I did about you know really that that I think did really well it was about a guy who in one of the early versions of Minecraft when you walk sufficiently far from the start point the world begins to disintegrate because of an error in the programming code and he he had decided to take it upon himself to walk to they're called the far lands in this early version of Minecraft and and he has been doing that I think he calculated it taking 23 years or something and he's, he's still going now that piece was called like far lands or bust or something and you know it's a sort of story that would i i think is as of interest to people who don't really care about games or or know anything about minecraft still might want to read that and then if you do know about minecraft hopefully you would still want to read that that's the sort of the the thing i was trying to i was trying to hit obviously now you're a successful author uh, you've um, you've written a book, uh, A Game of Birds and Wolves. Please tell me it's called that. I've written yeah. it down, and I thought if I've got that wrong, that'd be so embarrassing. Like <laughs> if it's like a game of dogs and wolves or something like that, you know. Um, and you've got another book out next year called The Island of Extraordinary Captives. Yes. Obviously, um, that's that's three books you've written now. How does that kind of career path emerge? Is that sort of along the same track as the the long form stuff, where it's like the opportunities just naturally opened up as a result of one thing leading to another? Yeah, I mean, pretty much exactly that. I was working on a a radio feature for the New Yorker Radio Hour about wargaming in in militaries. So basically, I'd seen a tweet written by the Russian government who was running a load of wargame exercises. So for people who don't know, wargames are essentially... Um, you know, where a, a government or an army will get together and imagine a potential situation that might occur. And then they will, each of the players will assume a different role around the table. So one person might play as like the, the army, another person might play as France, another player, player might play as like the police force or whatever. And they'll go through that scenario, see how each, how that, you know, that this potential scenario could, could play out. And I've seen a tweet written by uh, the Russian army me i think where they were role-playing as a fictional eastern european country that uh, russia was going to invade and you know for their war game they'd they'd gone to the extent that they were that that they'd you know come up with this uh these character essentially rpg character sheets for for all the people involved and had made it public and i was like 
that someone has to have the job of like writing these scenarios who is like the dungeon master for russia when it does like war gaming or whatever right which i think is a pretty good question and so that had like that sent me down the path of doing this war gaming story and i'd gone to shrivenham to like the uk where they run war gaming for the for the british army and i've been allowed to sit in on one of their war games and afterwards i was interviewing the major who sort of you know writes the scenarios for these things and i said have you got an example of where something that was learned in a war game turned out to be really useful in a real conflict and he firstly gave the example you know like the red telephone in the white house that links the white house to the kremlin that's like in 70s nuclear war cold war films he said that's literally an idea that came out of a war game where they were playing you know in the 70s like the idea of like the nuclear annihilation and it said you know if we were on the brink of that it would probably be good for the president to be able to get hold of russia without having to go through diplomatic channels why don't we make a hotline and then he said oh and there's this other example from the second world war of where you know britain was losing catastrophically to the u-boats and then we came up with a war game that that exposed the tactic that the u-boats were using that had hitherto remained un, un, unknown and turned around the battle of the atlantic so you know that was sort of a footnote in the in the radio story um but it was you know even as he was saying it to me i was like oh this is like a this is like a big story i could i could get you know i definitely want to write about this and i actually spoke to my friend tom bissell who's a, a an american um journalist uh, has written about video games he had a, a book out um called extra lives but also does lots of you know other non-games related journalism and he he just sort of i told him the story and said oh look you know do you think that could be a film maybe because he also writes films film screenplays and he said he said why don't you do it as a book and then see what happens and so that's what i did i sort of wrote up a proposal and, and went away and that became a game of birds and wolves and then you know it's sort of like writing a um like writing a, a very long uh, long feature i suppose but instead of you taking uh, you know, a month or two you spend two years on it um so it uses all the same muscles um i suppose and felt like quite a natural progression and also you know there's the benefit of you don't have to pitch while you're while you're doing it you can like once you get the green light to do a book and you know su- supposing that your advance is enough to sustain you then you you can just sort of focus on that one thing, which is which is really lovely. Like after Ooh. quite a few years of of being in the hustle, I suppose. Yeah, it's a it's a tough break for you though that your career's been going downhill ever since you had to get those grabs for Yoshi's <laughs> Island for the on GBA. Um, that's like a, a tough break, Simon. But um, no, that's extra, that's extraordinary stuff for sure. Um, so I was curious, your book got optioned, right? Does that mean you're rich now? You're learning a lot about my interviewing <laughs> technique from this kind what of thing. What a question uh, to ask. <laughs> look, look, I, on this podcast, I've been very honest about the fact that my interviewing technique is a little bit dodgy. So I'm asking asking the big question, <laughs> Simon. Does that mean that you're a rich guy? I think guy like now? if you feel that like urge rising in you as a as a interviewer, you have to you have to go with that. That's uh, that's a good thing to ask. I mean, the the answer is. Um, not yet so you get when you when your book or your article gets options you get a bit of money and that um means that the um the studio that's optioned it which in my case was was amblin uh, which was a which is steven spielberg's company which was an in, an insane phone call to take as you can well imagine um they have uh, <laughs> i think 18 months 
to sort of develop it and make a write a screenplay, appoint a screenwriter, see if they want to turn it into something or not. Uh, and at that point, it can just fizzle out and, and then the rights return to you and you're back to square one. And so I'm still kind of in, in that phase, really. They've got until next summer to make a decision of mm-hmm. whether they're going to go into production. And then if they do start making the film, then, um, then you know, I that will be i won't be like i won't be retire rich i won't be like video game director rich but i'll be you know it will it will be i won't have to do quite so many game boy advanced reviews for a while which will be nice <laughs> this this is this is going to be a re- this may be a really dumb question but that phone call isn't from steven spielberg is it no so the way it works is um uh, i have a, a book agent who um is responsible for basically our right proposal and she takes it out to publishers and they work closely with a film and TV agent. So if once a, once a book gets picked up and if it could be suitable for adaptation, then they pass it to the film and TV agent. And um, so that's what happened with, with this one. And and she took it out to, to various places. And I did, I did get a phone call from her that said, Oh, Steven Spielberg read your proposal over the weekend. And um, I would like to sort of, you know, option it. So yeah, just like, yeah, like an incredible moment. And even if like nothing, becomes of it that's still that's a good thing to have experienced you know once in your life i suppose like none of my features have been optioned by steven spielberg (laughs) (laughs) he isn't he hasn't bought the rights to my 15 saddest moments in nintendo games (laughs) one day matthew one day i felt really complicated feelings about it if i'm honest and when i was doing the initial sort of press tour about the book i didn't really want to mention it at all and um you know some of it i had to go on like radio five or something and and they knew about it and were really like I didn't mention it and then they were like really pushing me to to say what had happened and I just think that you know sometimes those things come along and it can really change all of the relationships in your life right because people are like oh well you know you're like too good for us now or like you've just moved to a different place or whatever and that you know that's can be quite isolating and and weird and so but like I think I've probably made peace with it you know especially the closer we get to the deadline and it looks like maybe you know it could be 50 50 whether it will happen or not I feel more comfortable talking about it perhaps but you know even after we get off this call I'll probably like be like oh why did I talk about that people are going to hate you but that's just how it goes isn't it no it's fascinating it's it's like a fascinating thing you know it's you only ever see the press release version of these things and it's just nice to hear actually how it goes down i think um you appearing on this podcast simon literally this is as down to earth as it gets i think this will um restore your (laughs) status as an everyman i think that's so um so that's fine so Simon your next book is The Island of Extraordinary Captives that's out next year what's um what's the deal with that Okay well this is not about video games so feel free to like skip forward to 2 minutes if if you're listening and are not interested but essentially it's it's a, a war story about a group of um Jewish artists who fled to Britain um on the eve of the second world war looking for refuge and sanctuary here and we allowed them in the country and then the war kicks off and suddenly there's this massive uh you know who would have thought it britain getting having a panic about refugees and asylum seekers but that happens when the war starts because people are like we've let loads of germans and austrians in this country you know never mind the fact that they're they're jewish and they're sort of you know refugees from nazi oppression but maybe they're actually nazi spies so you know in this mode of panic the government 
um, arrests uh, close to 30,000 refugees and sends many of them to the Isle of Man um, to to a number of internment camps there and my book is about this one particular camp on the island where these these artists um, end up and they've got nothing to do so rather than just waste their time they turn the camp into sort of a cultural center um, you know putting on lectures and and holding art exhibitions and musical concerts you know there's there's loads of very accomplished people in the camp Oxbridge lecturers you know internationally fated musicians and so yeah it's really about what what happened in this camp how did they get free and it's the the story of one young artist in particular um, and how the camp was the making of him so it's yeah about the about their story but more broadly I suppose about the refugee question as well but but in a compelling story I think Ooh. yeah oh fantastic so um, before we get to um, section two, where we're going to ask you a bit about some of your most notable interviewees working in games media, I did have a couple of things that I personally really wanted to ask you about. So uh, you worked on Edge's Making a Final Fantasy feature a, couple, a few years back, and I was curious about what that was like to assemble for you, because it was a really comprehensive look at that series, and you got some seriously good access um, including Sakaguchi, who hadn't been cooperating with Square Enix at that point before, or at least hadn't been working mm. with them since the um, the Spirits Within. What was that experience like, putting that feature together? I don't want to overstate my role in making all of that happen. So it, it was a sort of happy accident of timing in, in some sense, because it was the anniversary of Final Fantasy coming up. And as you say, the ice was beginning to thaw with Sakaguchi and some of some of his crew who had all left around the time that that uh, the final Fa- final fantasy the spirits within came came out which was of course a massive flop in hollywood and lost the company loads of money and i think they left for for whatever reason whether they were pushed or or not i'm not sure but um you know enough t- water had passed under the bridge for them to be willing to sort of take part in this final fantasy retrospective i don't know if that was the sort of brainchild of nathan brown who was editor of edge at the time or whether it was something square enix came to nathan with and said what do you think about doing this or perhaps it was a blend of the two from my perspective i got a call i was on holiday (laughs) camping in france and got a call from nathan saying um we've got this opportunity to like go to tokyo and interview sort of all of the key players uh, in the final fantasy series do you would you want to pull it together for us and it was going to be you know loads of pages you know this big lavish thing i think they did 15 different covers that you could get one for each game in the series um so you know just a a wonderful a wonderful opportunity to be given um but in terms of you know arriving in tokyo and all of that you know uh, these days a lot of my reporting is not organized by PRs um, in the way that it is when you're working with specialist media but this was definitely one of those times where like here's your schedule we've got an hour here an hour there and we'll we'll drive you around and then you do the interviews and then and then you you do what you want with them Um, so yeah I mean it was it was a a really lovely week it coincided with the Tokyo game show so I was able to do that at the end of the week but really most of the time was just spent going you know interviewing some of these people that uh, you know I have a great deal of affection for most of them I had interviewed previously um you know but but never in the kind of context where you're just allowed to ask wh- whatever you sort of want and they they're coming with the attitude of we're going to give answers we're not going to try and turn everything back to whatever game we've got coming back coming out this month you know mm. which is what typically happens with this kind of thing yeah. do you feel p- pressure doing stuff like that because I feel like when you get 
genuinely great access and it's so rare i i feel an immense amount of pressure to kind of i really need to make the most of this like this is an opportunity to mm. uncover something new or kind of like move our understanding forwards a bit like do you do you feel that oh, same yeah, pressure absolutely absolutely yeah because like you say those opportunities are quite rare and, and particularly with japanese interviewees I might be wrong with this, but my understanding is they don't quite have the same tradition, you know, the sort of American style long profile that you get in, in, um, you know, the New Yorker or Harper's or New York magazine or whatever, which, you know, when you're interviewing, a, if you if you go to a US dev with that, you know, they have grown up with, with those kind of stories being around and, you know, maybe they know like the name Gatelese or something like that. So they, that's sort of in the air. Whereas like in Japan, I think they don't have that. So it takes a bit of work to sort of get across what you're trying to do. Um, and so, yeah, when you do get those opportunities, mm. you really want to make the most of them. I, with this particular Final Fantasy story, I was sort of helped by the fact that the scaffolding for the piece was already in place. You know, essentially, we're going to start on day one and you're going to take us through what was it like working on Final Fantasy 2. <laughs> like, yeah. But, I, you know, I think the most exciting stuff for me was talking about the very early days of, of Square as it was at that time and Sakaguchi you know really sort of students really that was the vibe they were just sort of starting out and you know this upstarts with you know trying to trying to make their way in the world and make games and um, you know it was very they came in a mode ready to ready to reminisce and and give good anecdotes and so it was incredibly satisfying and and you know a real privilege to be able to to to, mm. to hear that and get to write it down i suppose so simon uh, you visited yoshitaka Mano's studio right the um the one of the the main logo designer and the original character designer of final fantasy what was that like he i had never interviewed before i don't know you know he is a proper bona fide star not like not like a video game celebrity he's an actual like art celebrity in in japan and you know that was very much the um the that atmosphere going into his workshop you know he's he's obviously wealthy and and has like an incredible studio in the center of tokyo with a massive walls and you know that can have a he's he's got you know 10 12 foot paintings on the wall that he's working on with ladders or whatever um so you know being allowed into that (laughs) context was incredible um and i we we sat down to to talk and he had his assistant with him which very often like you know sort of big name older japanese dudes do they have their personal assistant sat next to them taking notes or whatever um and i asked you know my first question of you know tell me how did sakaguchi approach you with this idea of doing you know whatever whatever it was and he just like puts his head down and like it crosses his his hands and his his assistant starts answering for him and um she like gives a really really long answer like four or five minutes and then i and then i'm sort of like looking sideways at the pr guy who's looking sideways at me and then i do my next question and and she does the same again and i'm like you know thinking what on earth are we going to do like this is completely unusable like i can't i can't just quote his secretary but like this stuff is not (laughs) it's not in keeping with the you know the moment i suppose so um thankfully like the square the square enix 
you know personally who's an old friend of mine like we he used to be a journalist and i went on trips with him when we started off he's he's not actually a pr anymore he's but but he was the one with me and you know we know each other well enough that i think he knew what i was thinking and was because he's got a background in journalism as well so he just sort of jumped in and said i'm really sorry but you're gonna have to answer these questions mr romano (laughs) um and then like (laughs) I don't know if he was having an off day or something. He was like perfectly lovely. And once he was talking, it was totally fine. But it was quite a hairy, like initial moment. That's kind of like um, by putting his hands on his head, he's kind of activating a psychic power and then speaking through his (laughs) assistant, um, that kind of vibe. Okay, let's take a brief break then and we'll come back and ask Simon about a few of his favourite interviewees. back to the podcast so simon's been very generous with his time telling us about his career but in this part we're going to talk a bit about some of his favorite interviewees or rather some of his most notable interviewees so simon i did kind of brief you ahead of time that this was something we were going to discuss and you sent over three names to me where i got incredibly excited about hearing these stories so uh, why don't you kick (laughs) off with the um the first one you want to discuss these are not all success stories let me say that so the i suppose the first interview that really sticks in my mind was fairly early in my career i got to interview tetsuya nomura who is um the director of kingdom hearts which is the first game i reviewed for edge and this was in like 2007 and we had gone there was like a, a press trip out to tokyo for an event that was i think it was called square enix party or something like that it was held in uh, makahari which is the big sort of aircraft hangars where tokyo game shows is held and it was just all dedicated to square's games and um you know got to play their forthcoming stuff which was hugely exciting i got to play um it was around the time that the final fantasy tactics uh, remake was coming out on vita or psp one or the other and i got to play whoever the um whoever the director of that was and if you beat him this was like because it was full of punters as well you could play the director and if you beat him then you got like a poster and i remember like playing him like one-on-one and it was so obvious he was like desperately trying to lose so so this foreign journalist could get his poster so that was um he's just like dunking his handheld in a glass of milk and things and you're like come on man um anyway that evening on the first first night we were going to interview nomura and you know we, we were sort of brief that nomura can be quite prickly with with press particular foreign press and there was a story that normally when you normally most video game directors have been sort of you know media trained and and briefed to sort of scientology levels and they'll always they'll they'll always say oh that's a that's a great question matthew or that's a great question sam and that's a good tell for when like this is a this is a bad question that i have already been briefed for (laughs) um but oh i I still get a thrill from that i'm like yes i've done it right so that you feel you feel good about yourself and them and then you're gonna give them a nice time Anyway, Nomura does not have this reputation. And I think uh, we were told that uh, a, a foreign journalist had, had asked him a bunch of questions. And at some point, he'd just gone, your, your questions are, are terrible. I'm not answering them anymore. And it just left the room. So <laughs> it, it, we, did, we, were sort of, we were waiting for this with, with sort of you know, apprehension. And he also had a reputation for being quite late. He, his position in the company was quite powerful. Sakaguchi and all the others had, had 
been fired or had left or whatever he was the last one remaining from that time he'd done like he'd designed cloud and sephiroth and all of that so you know for for the square enix um higher ups he was he was the creative heart of the company going forward so he had a lot of power so he turns up to this interview like two three hours late the 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 hall is like closed everyone's gone we're just like waiting around and then we get led in and he sort of looks quite moody he's got most of like Square Enix directors are sort of wearing eight belts and like chains and they just look like one of their characters. He didn't, he didn't look like that at all. He had sort of a black Mickey Mouse. It had like the Mickey Mouse from the bad one from Kingdom Hearts or whatever he, on, his, on his cap and he looked pretty cool and he just sort of sat down and looked like a mopey teenager and started smoking. And um, I asked him the first question. I said, so he was working, we were there to interview him about Final Fantasy thirteen. Versus thirteen was it the sort of game that 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 um, mm. that got lost and anyway it was at the time when it was still a going concern and and it had a we'd seen like the intro movie that was quite dark and I said oh yeah so um, it looks like Final Fantasy versus thirteen is going to be take a you know darker approach to the previous ones and he just sort of looked at me and went yeah it's set at night <laughs> 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 and I was just I remember thinking oh. I've really blown that <laughs> um, oh, yeah. it was like a, a bad not a, a bad interview but sometimes you can turn those around I suppose and the piece was all right uh, I think and but it was a you know one of those group uh. interview situations which are just the worst when you're in with you know like a, a journalist from Italy and one from France and you have to listen to their stupid questions and then um, everyone like writes down everyone everyone else's answers and puts them in their piece it's just like the so anti-journalism but anyway, you know that that was uh, it stuck in my mind as sort of you know one of these these big moment pieces. I remember reading your uh, bit you did for Eurogamer uh, about Sakaguchi. He, he you'd caught him very jet lagged and in a bad mood, and I think he was. I think I remember him being grumpy with quite mm. a lot of people. You just went and had a rather sad haircut to cheer <laughs> yes, yourself up. Did, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, my hairdresser knew about Final Fantasy and. Um, Oh dear. Yeah, I mean, there's only so many times you can pull that trick of my my interview went really badly, but here, let me try and spin it into something engaging. Um, but yeah, I, d- I d- definitely reached my quota of those. Uh, not to make this all about me, but that Sakaguchi visit was for him coming over to do his BAFTA oh, right. talk about mm-hmm. the last story, which is where I met Catherine, my no future way. wife. So if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be married. I I, I owe I owe quite a lot to to that very oh, grumpy well, visit. Bless sad Sakaguchi after all. <laughs> yeah, and uh, bless that haircut indeed. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, hit us with another one, Simon. Another notable interviewee um, where you've got some experiences to share. This one is like an uh, an email interview, <laughs> so like the worst kind of interview you can do. But it but it was for something quite interesting, I think. So in this is in 2008. I'd, I'd like heard about this game that came out for the Dreamcast called Sega Gaga, which was came out late in the Dreamcast life. And in the game, you assume control of failing Sega and you have to try and turn around their console division and make the Dreamcast profitable and beat the rival console maker, right? 
incredible what a thing to put out while while your console business is going down the drain and like i'd always thought like who made that like and how did they get sign off on that so i somehow i managed to get like the email address of tezza carno at, at sega who was still at sega and um get questions to him he said you know he said my english isn't good i'll i'll answer them on um over email so when you do that you sort of send your questions off with your fingers and toes crossed because you just don't know what's going to come back and sometimes it's two lines and it's unusable brilliantly his like responses came back and they were long and vivid and funny and you know he just talked about really how he won he's a massive sega fan he was like breaking his heart how dreamcast was failing and he wanted to make a game where like people could take you know change the story i suppose and he sort of took it into (laughs) he wrote his pitch up took it into the hires up and they just laughed at him thinking he was doing like a an excellent joke and then he sort of like left the room (laughs) like no I, I actually do want to make this and so they gave him like a tiny budget and then he went away and and it took two years to make and during this time like sega's fortunes are continuing to decline so by the time it comes out it's like extremely bittersweet and um just the most striking thing about his interview that he gave me back was that his marketing budget on that game was, I think, £120. <laughs> and so he had no money to do anything. And so he blew like £90 of it on a wrestler's mask. And he was like, I'm just going to wear this and walk around a Kiyabara and like tell people about my game. And um so he'd like set up i think he managed to get like permission to put a table in like three places in um akihabara at different times of the day and people could come and get their copy of the game signed or whatever and like real diehard sega fans sort of went and sought him out and um but yeah just uh it was it just came out really well and um that it published in edge and then i recently sort of helped out on a dreamcast book um that uh that, that came out with uh, for read-only memory and um uh, future or tony said that i could use that interview in that book so so if you've got if you've got a copy of that you can sort of read his answers which is well worth seeking out i think that's great that they've been um they've been captured somewhere else yeah. for people to find that's really cool yeah it's definitely good to sort of shed light on something like that which definitely has a kind of mythical status among uh among mm-hmm. sega fans so that's cool so uh, what's what's your next one simon i suppose i wanted to talk a bit about uh hideo kojima the maker of metal gear solid who um I first, I first interviewed, I, I first started freelancing for The Guardian, I can't remember, like maybe about 2012 or something. And it was, um, it was quite different. You know, I know you've had Keza on in the past who runs a very tight ship and, and um, Keith Stewart before her and, and with her now as well, um, sort of, you know, runs things exactly as it should be run. But, but when I was first doing it, it felt like a little bit like the Wild West. There was like a rogue sub-editor who had like taken control of the, of the game's coverage uh, that was going up on the Guardian's website. And what would happen would he would just, when an opportunity came in, he would sort of email mail it around all of the people who were contributors or whatever and said does anyone want to do this and the offer came in to do Kojima and someone got there before me and so I said well I don't really like Kojima I don't like his games but I suppose you know I can do it and like normally I would just back down in that scenario and think oh I just I won't I won't say anything but this time I was like no this is a great opportunity he's coming like he was coming over for something like the BAFTA thing and he was the opportunity was like an hour and a half to have breakfast with him and talk about his career 
and i was like this is this sort of thing very rarely happens so i sort of emailed and went look do you mind if i do it because i i really do like kojima and i like his games and i you know i would love to spend this time talking to him and you know graciously this other chap said yeah that's fine so so i got to like spend time with him you know interviewing him about his career for that piece and that sort of started a bit of a relationship with with him in the sense that he knew who i was because i'd had that one-on-one for quite a bit of time fast forward like three years and i was at tgs and was chatting to a member of of his team that was working on metal gear solid 5 who had had like a few drinks and was saying um like Kojima's um, leaving or has left Konami. Like no one knows. It's really bad. Like the whole atmosphere is terrible. Um, the you know Metal Gear Solid Five isn't quite finished yet. Um, he's been sent on gardening leave. He's not allowed to say he's left for for a while. Well, he's not allowed to say what he's doing next for for a few months. And because I'd had that like previous interview experience with him, I was able to to e- message Kojima's. Um, secretary or he's got like a she's more than a secretary like the person who basically organizes him and and you know whatever she is his personal assistant but again that feels like too small for what what her role is but anyway Mm. i emailed her and said look i've heard this is it true and then you know if so do you think i could interview him about it for the new yorker and she came back and said um yeah it is something like he wants to talk about um but we can't talk about what we're doing next, which was, as we now know, Death Stranding and, and his own company until like December the 15th or whatever the date was when like um, Konami's like non-disclosure ran out. Um, but he is allowed to say that, that, that he's left. So, you know, this was sort of like, uh, obviously a huge opportunity. I'm not really a news guy, to be honest, and I'm not really someone who is super into chasing scoops i like prefer the longer stuff but uh mm-hmm. but you know thankfully i was working with an editor who did realize you know appreciate that this was this was you know important it could be could be great for getting people to come to the new yorker to read about it so he said you know ask if you can do it ask for like exclusivity on it and um and yeah so i went back and and they said, look, he will talk to you about it, but you've got to sign an NDA between you and Hideo <laughs> to say basically that you're not going to like <laughs> say what he's doing next until this particular date. So I got this contract through that was just between like me and him basically <laughs> saying, I'll talk about this and I won't talk about this until this date or whatever. And then, and then he gave me, he gave me that, that story and we published it in mid-October saying I think the headline that they put on it was something like why did Hideo Kojima leave Konami now at this point like no one knew he had left Konami or or if they did it was only like rumors or whatever so Mm. you know this is obviously like a within within the actual world it's like it's pretty meaningless but within the games world like it's a big story right yeah and there are were loads of people who who were very doubtful of the story essentially and this was not helped by the fact that the story went up like overnight i think uh, while, while the uk was asleep by the time i woke up the the story had not only gone live on the new yorker website but konami had issued a statement to the japan times 
denying it, basically saying, yeah, the New Yorker story isn't true. So like for any Kojima fans that were really looking forward to Metal Gear Solid 5, they jumped on this and like my Twitter was like a trash fire, just people going, you're just doing this for attention, you know, whatever, not understanding like the New Yorker's hundred year sort of world class fact checking department, <laughs> but never mind. And I was like, <laughs> I, I w- went out for a walk with my dog and I was just thinking, this is just, this is such a shit situation. Like, I know it's true. I know Konami's lying about it. They're like bringing not only my reporting into disrepute, but also the publication I write for, which is threatening to me as a freelancer to be in that situation. Just thinking, what could I do? So, and I just sort of thought, I know if I can get a photograph like from from his leaving party, then maybe that will go some way to like showing that the story's true. So I wrote to the guy I knew in on his team and said, you wouldn't happen to have a photograph from his leaving do that you could send me and we'll strip the metadata out and then I can, you know, put it on my Twitter or whatever as a as a sign and the the the, the story's true. And he went away and came back about like an hour later and went, here you go, you know, here's the picture. And so I put that on, on Twitter and said you know, here is a photograph of Kojima's leaving do that Konami says they've got no knowledge about. And it had him and it had Shinokawa, the the, uh, the, the uh, artist he works with, both sort of saying goodbye. And then, of course, because things are never simple, like immediately that sets off another chain of, um, you know, conspiracy theories. And you get like real hardcore Japan dweebs going, well, you know, actually, traditionally, at a business, when you leave a business, you get a particular bouquet of flowers, which we can't see in the photos. This is obviously from something else and it's just exhausting <laughs> but at least I felt I felt I'd gone some way to sort of showing that the story was true and then if, you know it's so unfair because of course you get like a thousand people going you're just doing this for attention and then when of course the story turns out to be true a month or two later you know there's just like tumbleweeds no one's going oh okay sorry sorry about that thing I yeah. said back there that, that really was quite hard when you have half the internet like saying that to you but that's the that's the perils of the job yeah i mean to be sitting on that information is like why you know most people won't get one of those stories in their career and to have it and think wow what i can do with this or what should i do with this that must be pretty Yeah, definitely i mean you just want to do it justice and yeah you do know that it's it's gonna you know you think i suppose you know you never quite know do you when you put these things out like um, and and that's also something that happens on Twitter is when you tweet something out, of course, it's got no likes or retweets on it. It's just something you've said. And then when people come to it and it's got like 20,000 likes or, or however many it got, and then suddenly people are coming to it with a different lens and going, oh, you just did this so that you could get loads of attention. But I mean, I suppose, you know, it's a good lesson to <laughs> not pay too much attention to these things. But that is in the, mo- you know, that's easier said than done after the moment. And there, there is like, you know, uh, a bit, a bit mm. of mild trauma, yeah. I think, when you're in the eye of these storms. <laughs> so, uh, Simon, I was curious if from that, I feel like the full story of why he left Konami's never come out. As someone who had a bit of insider status, do you feel like you're able to shed any more light on on what led to his um, departure from Konami? I mean, just a couple of addendums actually, very quickly to that. So, I, I subsequently found out, you know, I was feeling quite self satisfied at having having posted that photo and proven Konami wrong, and then. It, Actually, about a year later, I found out that that Konami looked at other photos from that event and figured out the person who had taken the photo by looking at other pictures and then disciplined them as a result of that. So, um, yeah, so that sort of took the shine off it a bit. But uh, (laughs) um, 
Mm. I, you know, I, I think I think you know this story. Kojima is one of the few celebrities within video games, for want of a better word, auteur. Some people might say, I don't know if that's true or not, but anyway, he's he's one of those people who is almost a household name, I suppose. You know, people will probably automatically side with his version of events. Konami is a big business. Video games were just one small part of it that they don't seem to care that much about anymore. So people will probably not take Konami's view. I don't know what they would say you know Konami's higher-ups maybe he was a difficult person to work with maybe he was asking for too many things um you know he was obviously occupying a certain position of power within the company where he could could command you know very large budgets and probably you know certain a certain degree of treatment when he's you know going around and with it i heard a rumor he had like an apartment that they were paying for in Rapongi nearby and would demand a certain level of, of travel and things like that so you know i'm sure they would have a version of events of, <laughs> of of why why it was no longer a viable relationship but um in terms of his motivations for going um i'm i'm not sure what is certainly true is that he does not like talking about metal gear solid anymore and even at that time he didn't really want to you know answer any questions about that and as far as i know sort of any journalists that would bring that up with him now would get pretty quickly shut down so um yeah i mean it, it's one of those where the 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 true stories let's say you know from the various players perspectives i don't know might might never come out it, it would be nice if someone did a, a you know an authorized biography with him or something that could tell a bit more of that story but i i don't know if he's he's going to do that or is ready to do that um, i feel sort of the same mm, thing actually mm. about um sakaguchi as well and, and that moment and you know the what i was told at the time is that basically all of the people he had hired into square enix were sort of pushed out after him as well which, which includes matsuno who is the guy who made final fantasy tactics who who sakaguchi hired he mm. he loved ogre battle that that um, game series so much that he just brought that whole team in and mm. said can you make me in a final fantasy themed ogre battle and um you know there's uh, matsuno famously was director of final fantasy 12 and and left um in inverted commas due to ill health at some point during that and there's sort of a you know theories about whether he was he was made to go because that was the time Sakaguchi was going as well whether he was being difficult and there's like a a secret boss in the game that's that like named after Matsuno and stuff so you know that's that's one story I would I would you know it's it's a niche concern perhaps but it's one that I would love to tell as well but you know these stories are are very difficult to wheedle out Mm. for for a variety of reasons yeah I remember actually at the time it was around the time the Zodiac Age came out I think we exchanged DMs about Final Fantasy 12 Mm. and why Square Enix, when you ask them, the the new producers of that version about it, they just wouldn't mm. shed light on Matsuno leaving. They were like, there was no, there was no behind the scenes trouble. And I and I <laughs> noticed that you didn't quite get that story in the Edge mm. piece either. But obviously, you were dealing with official Square mm. Enix. But you do wonder, will that story ever come out? You know, because definitely another truth there somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the problems with the video game industry uh, these days is that companies plaster their staff with lifetime NDAs so there's just no opportunity for them to talk about it at any time for whatever company they're working for at that time which is you know a a terrible thing and not not how NDAs should be used I I don't think yeah for sure so Simon should we wrap up by talking a little bit about your Miyamoto interview because 
that feels like the last big one. What was the the background that led to that interview, and what was the actual interview like? Yeah, so um, I did interviewed Miyamoto a couple of times, uh, once for the Guardian, and then a couple of times with the Guardian. Actually, I think I can't remember, but you know, it was always. I, I remember talking to to Chris Donlan um, beforehand, who had interviewed him for for Edge, and he said he said the problem with interviewing Miyamoto is you think that you're interviewing Walt Disney but you're actually interviewing Mickey Mouse <laughs> his 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 point being that you know he's sort of the mascot for the company and that's the <laughs> the mode in which he talks which is such a brilliant way of putting it such a Donlan-esque way of putting it but um I think it was you know that, that had been certainly my experience I, I interviewed him at the Louvre when they had brought out like a Nintendo DS guide for the for the art gallery in paris i think and then oh i was so je- i was so jealous when i found out that like four journalists from the uk were getting to go to paris to talk to miyamoto oh god i can't believe it i wish i wish i was there and then it was like but you have to talk to him about this app and i was like mm. well yeah i think you've got to the the heart of the issue there so he he uh he's you know he is uh, he's he's been in the game a long time and he, he knows how to talk to he knows how to manage a journalist and you know you want to talk to him about um, where do you get your crazy ideas from uh, or whatever and he, he really wants to uh, just talk about his his app for, to tell you about the Mona Lisa which of course like no no one really wants to talk to him about <laughs> as interesting as I'm sure that is um, so yeah that was that was the problem he just you know he did talk a bit about other things but what I wanted to ask him about was of course his, his life and to try and you know all, all of that stuff that you would you would want to ask Miyamoto in a profile that was sort of you know he would he would answer a bit but would always bring it back to the topic at hand and and that happened another time when I interviewed him it, it, I think it was the last group interview I ever did where one of the um, one of the other journalists asked him if he likes cats and I remember just thinking I'm never doing this again <laughs> it was like for for like Mario 3D World and it was like that was that's your question where it, it's Miyamoto you're asking me if he likes cats anyway anyway um <laughs> So I'd, I'd wanted to like occasionally. I'd, I'd been building up a relationship with Nintendo in the US, who, who have a bit of sway with Japan. I think definitely Nintendo in Japan is when all, where all the decisions are made, as as you well know, Matthew. And um, you know, but but I'd been building up a bit of sort of relationship with with his people in America. And we had been talking about they they'd offered like a piece where we could talk to Miyamoto and then some of the other directors of like the Mario games, but you'd have to talk to them about their specific games and it would have to be equal time given to each. Lots of like provisos that that New Yorker just flatly say, mm-hmm. no, you can't do that. Like, you know, that's that's not what we're going to do. But my editor, my current my current editor there, who's an, an amazing chap called Sharon Shetty and. Um, came back and said look why don't you why don't you see if you can do something for we've we've launched a new section on the site called the new yorker interviews they're sort of you know three four thousand word um essentially qa formats but you 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 know it's talking about the person's life and their work you know from a from a bird's eye perspective or whatever so it's, it's something with a bit more ambition go and see if they'd be up for doing that so i went back and you know of course because it's a japanese company and things have to happen in the right order they immediately said no so you know we've been developing this particular idea for ages it has to be this or nothing and so we were like well it's nothing then and then but the the u.s sort of person was like you know i love the new york i've been a subscriber for a long time we'd love to do this 
I can totally see what you want to do, um, but but it will take like buy-in. So it was like back and forth for like a year, just trying to like get across the vision for what I want to do, which is like, don't want to interview him where it's like tied to a product that's coming out. And they kept saying like, can you do something like based around the new theme part that's coming up, time to coincide with that. And, you know, it's like, no, like that's not, not what we're after here. You know, it's, it's talking to him, you know, person to person, like a, you know, like an artist really, and trying to have a bit more scope with that. And then because I'd had such, I suppose, difficult experiences with, with, you know, eventually they come back and say, all right, we've got the green light. It's going to happen on this date. You can have like, I don't know, 90 minutes or something. So, which is amazing. But because I'd had such difficult experiences in the past where I wasn't quite sure if he was going to answer properly, I did something that, that I never do. and normally try to just go into interviews these days just with, you know, just a few ideas in my head of what I want to talk about so that you're having more of a conversation. But this time I was like, do you know what? I'm going to write every question down like how I want to say it so that even if he gives terrible answers that will be revealing like in some way because the question is sort of not snookering him but putting him in a position where he's either going to respond or he doesn't and if he doesn't then that's going to say something as well so 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 that's what Mm. I what I did and obviously I was still like listening to what was coming back and and asking follow-ups and all that but I had this sort of spine of questions that I was going to ask so that I knew that you know, even if it was a terrible interview, it would, it would, you know, work to one degree or another. And thankfully he came back, you know, he, he came with the right, I don't know if we caught him at the right moment in his life or whatever. It was like his birthday, I think. And he was talking about his grandkids and he just came in a reflective mood where he was talking about, he was not talking, he was not in like Miyamoto, the mascot mode. He was like talking as a as a human being as someone who's thought long and deeply about game design which is something i've never really got from you know my own interviews with him at least um and and you know so it was mm. just like fantastic you know opportunity and and it, it it came off i think um you know and certainly it was well received on the whole but you always get some people that go oh i think this interview tells me more about the interviewer than it does about the interviewee but um <laughs> oh no it's matt it's 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 a like it's a sensationally good interview oh, thank you. i think um like i've i've read so many Miyamoto interviews i've never met the guy myself i've never been able to interview him and it was always a point of frustration that to read interviews where people either asked dumb questions or clearly you were being shepherded down a route and I really felt like it kind of like I was saying earlier it kind of like it made some progress you know it like opened up some stuff it gave you a better idea of the man and you know what more can you hope to achieve really oh thank you I mean that that means a lot and uh, yeah it took a really long time to get to that point to be honest and it's I suppose you know in this industry of like games journalism I I was laughing the other day listening to your podcast where um, you were saying that someone called you like the gammons of games journalism right (laughs) and I was thinking that would only happen like in this industry where like two guys in their 30s get labeled with a term that like in the real world is applied to people like in their 60s and 70s with a particular view (laughs) and it like says something where i remember like being like 30 years old and and people going oh yeah like he's part of the old guard of game journalism what other industry are you like the old guard at you know i feel like i'm just getting started and just like learning anyway you know i think that yeah (laughs) that me and my you know i sometimes think 
has it been a bit of a waste of time like pl- plung- plumbing away at like writing about games for so long and that was like an interview where I actually thought do you know what like this probably couldn't have happened if I hadn't been like working in space for quite some time and like trying to build up a reputation or like trust or whatever and you know obviously mm-hmm. I only got to do that thing because of the platform because of the outlet I'm writing for I'm not I'm not dumb enough to think it was because of me and not because of that but like you know I do like to think that you know, I was a factor in that as well. And I was able to like bring together these two institutions like of the New Yorker, um, which can be quite Nintendo-like in some ways, I think, in the way it's run. And then also Nintendo and sort of go, look, if these two things come together, I think something really good ca- could happen. And, you know, to, mm. to have made that happen really took some like just sticking around. Yeah, I just it's just funny thinking about like how different Kojima and Miyamoto are because mm. like Kojima he would definitely know like the new yorker and what it would mean to be in there and the prestige of it mm. you know and he's and i'm not saying like cynically so but you know he's 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 just so tapped into like the modern world and you really do get this impression of miyamoto basically vanishing into that that building i mean you've definitely compared him and, and used the willy wonka comparison <laughs> in your writing before mm. but it is like that you know it's they have this big faceless building in that interview, like, I love the stuff about where you were just trying to get him to tell you, like, what's it like in your office? <laughs> and he kind of gives you that vague, like, ah, some people can kind of bring toys in. And, you know, you, you, and even that, you're like, wow, you know, like, that's new. Like, cause I, I, th- I think, I just think of it as this incredibly grim place. And that's why we don't know about it. You know, and he's like, the food's good in the cafeteria. I just, I don't know. I really, I, I love that stuff. That was just like... That's just absolute catnip. Um, it was great that yeah, his was... his essential point as well was like, like I don't really care what the office is like. That's not the point. The point is, you know, the the point is the work, right? And it was just what you want. From, mm. You want Miyamoto to say something like that, I suppose. You know, you want him to be blasé and go, oh, I suppose the food's all right, but like, yeah. you know, we're making magic here. Like, why are you asking that? Yeah. <laughs> so I also like that he said, I don't buy presents for people. And uh, that jumped out at me for some reason. And the other thing was um, the idea of, like, you know, I own the consoles and my kids borrow them off me. <laughs> I just, uh, that really made me, that just made me laugh. I don't know why, but... <laughs> it's, you, you're spot on on your analysis about Kojima, by the way, because a few months after that story ran, I ra- we ran a pair of stories about Kojima. One when he, like, he was leaving and one when he announced his new thing. And about six months later, I got, like, a, an email from his assistant going, um, Kojima would really like to um, write a film criticism column for the new yorker can you make that happen <laughs> <laughs> and i think i think she sent me were like one of them one of his columns as an attachment i was like i'm sorry that is way above my pay grade <laughs> <laughs> that's that's so good <laughs> uh, amazing um, but did you ask Miyamoto if he likes cats, Simon? That's the important thing here, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, did you, um, maybe I'm being yeah. a dick and like that question could open up <laughs> new universes of understanding of who Miyamoto is. But um, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I'd steer clear of pets as a rule. <laughs> I think that question says more about the interviewer than the interviewee. <laughs> um, yeah. did, did you ever interview a water? Um, no, sadly not. No, I wrote his... Um, I wrote his um, obituary for the New Yorker, but that, but that was it. Sorry, that's a downer note to end on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> and yeah. Let me and cut that, that bit. we come to the end of the podcast. <laughs>
Oh, okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Simon, for uh, for sharing your stories. I guess, you know, it's weird asking you to plug stuff because I feel like people know who you are. But your website's simonparkin.com, right? Where can people find you on social media? Uh, I mean, maybe don't. <laughs> I'm on, I'm on, t- <laughs> I'm on Twitter at, at Simon Parkin, but I, I'm not... I've got a complicated relationship with Twitter at the moment. So, you know, I don't post much there, but I do post the occasional stories. So, yeah. Sure. So obviously you've got the Island of Extraordinary Captives coming up uh, next year. Is there anything else you've got kind of got in the works that you wanted to flag or mention? I've got a couple of new New Yorker stories uh, brewing that should be out uh, later this year. And so if you would like to read those, that would be great. I think it's, you know, it's you know it's lovely to be able to write about games in that venue and um yeah i think your listeners would hopefully like those pieces as well yeah absolutely it's always a a treat to see your byline and i really liked your um best games of the last year list as well um i think you in your intro you very you you really summed up how i felt about about games last year which is the the idea that they're sparkly and full of rewards but it's not quite enough to to fight the darkness of the world as it stands and um mm. i thought that was very insightful yeah the problem but, with um, writing that is like am i going to write that every year until the end I don't, <laughs> <laughs> it feels that it feels like maybe that's the best response to each year now but <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly um so if you'd like to uh, follow the podcast on twitter it's at backpage pod matthew where can people find you i'm at mr basil underscore pesto i'm samuel w roberts we'll be back next week with an episode probably about some complete nonsense um but uh, thank you very much for listening and we'll be back next week bye for now bye.